I'm sure that uh, a number of you have, at some point in your life, served on a jury trial. And if you've done that, you have observed uh, cases being presented by attorneys that are typically very, very well prepared. And of course, woe be it to the attorney that shows up trying to just shoot from the hip. That just doesn't work very well. But even the witnesses come prepared to speak, at least to some degree. Both sides fear leaving testimonies just up to chance. So a lot of work takes place behind the scenes uh, to make sure that things don't go awry during the questioning. In uh, Mark chapter 13, Jesus says something very challenging about how his followers are to prepare for their interrogations when the authorities inevitably haul them off. He says, when they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't prepare at all for those moments. Don't, don't carry a, a script around just in case you get hauled off by the authorities. When the people in power put you on the hot seat, just wait until the moment comes and the Holy Spirit will provide you with the right things to say, is what Jesus appears to be telling us. And I have to wonder if Jesus was pondering his own words as he stood there before Pilate and the chief priests, hearing the, the priests falsely accuse him and, and Pilate grilling him. Perhaps in his silence, Jesus was simply waiting. He was waiting for the words that the Spirit would supply in this very desperate moment. But apparently there were none, because Jesus gave no response. You know, our text this morning does offer to us a familiar story for, for most of us here. We know how things go. We know that Jesus will indeed be unjustly executed. And, and we recall, of course, all the amazing things that are going to happen after that. But this part of the story is desperate in a number of ways. There are false accusations. There's, there's collusion between the religious leaders and the Romans. There's Jesus' suffering and death. This is not lightweight stuff. There's real heavy drama here. Now, there's another little bit of drama that's sandwiched in between our readings. If you go to the text, um, we see that, that Pilate attempts to wriggle out of condemning Jesus by agreeing to release him. Uh, apparently, this was something he did on occasion for Passover to appease the, the Jewish population, let somebody go. Uh, but the religious leaders wouldn't go for it. They, they stirred up the crowds. They got them shouting for the release of a man named Barabbas, uh, who had been in prison because of uh, his participation in an insurrection. A murder was apparently involved. These were crimes that surely would have resulted in a sentence of death, death by crucifixion. But somehow the, the chief priest managed to, to suck the crowds into some kind of, of groupthink so that they called for the freeing of Barabbas while simultaneously calling for the condemnation and death of Jesus. And, and because the loudest voices just seem to be the ones that end up winning, the die is cast. Jesus is sent to his death and Barabbas is set free. You know, you, you got to wonder how the crowds shifted their loyalties so quickly. I mean, people wonder this all the time. Just a little while ago, they were singing praises and welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, and now they're shouting for his, 
for his death. Maybe the chief priest just hired some thugs to infiltrate the crowd and get them going. Or maybe it's just that crowds can be fickle at times. It might also be true that the people, by and large, had, had given up on Jesus as the one who would save them on their terms. What the people really seemed to have wanted was to be in charge of their nation once again, get the Romans out. Well, Jesus kept talking about this kingdom, this coming of the kingdom of God, and uh, he sure sounded like a Messiah there for a while, but nothing ever changed, well, outside of a few medical improvements, and yeah, there was the raising of some dead people and, you know, just things like that, uh, but the Romans were still in charge, and Jesus would now see what his apparent unwillingness to stage a coup would bring. Maybe what people really needed was a true hero, a, a risk taker, a strong man, you know, somebody like Barabbas. And so Barabbas is released, and then he completely disappears from the biblical narrative. We never hear about him again. So the chief priests and the crowds got their way. And, and Pilate, while initially reluctant to condemn Jesus, caved in and he let Rome's very efficient machinery of death do its work. Well, we know how the story plays out, don't we? Most of us have heard this story before. Now, I don't know if this works like this for you, but um, when I read this story, I always want it to turn out differently the next time I read it. You know, I, I do this with books and movies as well. I want Butch and Sundance to get out and, you know, open a hardware store in Denver. I don't know. I want Walter White to quit cooking meth, turn from his evil ways, and reunite with his family and only a few of you know what I'm talking about, and <laughs> your secret is safe with me. But I want Jesus to just stay out in the countryside, avoid Jerusalem altogether. I want Pilate to get a backbone and, and tell the chief priest to take a hike. And, and while I don't want anybody to end up on a cross, I'd much rather it be Barabbas than Jesus. But the story always stays the same, no matter how many times we read it. Yeah, so when we arrive at the end of our gospel reading this morning, we stop at the place of death. We stop at a place of, of hopelessness because Jesus is there on the cross. He's dead. He has breathed his last. And only a centurion has anything of value to say about what has happened. Now, I, I, have, to, I have to confess publicly here, Todd, I thought you made a mistake when you assigned me this text for this morning. Uh, because this is supposed to be stuff we talk about during Holy Week. You know, crucifixion of Jesus and all that. This is uh, not what we're supposed to talk about at the end of ordinary time, the season after Pentecost, on our way to Advent. I almost emailed Bishop Todd, say, have you really thought this through carefully? Um, I thought better of it. I didn't, I didn't do it. Uh, I soldiered on, and, and then something occurred to me, this, this sense of hopelessness this sense of the loss of the one who was supposed to set Israel free is the kind of hopelessness, the brand of hopelessness that actually precedes Advent, at least in terms of the biblical narrative. See, in, in two weeks, we'll enter into an annual celebration of hope in the child who comes to us as Emmanuel. God is with us. But the story that gives us that celebration is actually a story that is preceded by hopelessness, a, a loss of hope that anything will ever change, that evil and death will continue to have their way, that fear and oppression 
will always characterize the shared life of the people of God. So we are left today with Jesus dead on the cross. But right before his life is extinguished, he shouts out something that has challenged theologians for centuries. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathes his last. Now, some over the years have said, well, this is probably the moment when God allows Jesus to bear the weight of the world's sin, and then God turns away, turns his back, allowing sin and death to complete their work, leaving Jesus completely and universally alone as the innocent one who carries this burden that God cannot bear to see. And certainly, if any of us were to suffer such a fate, we too would wonder where God had gone, why he had deserted us in our time of need. But maybe there's another perspective we can have on this. Before we start trying to create a theological theory about where God was during Jesus' suffering and death, we need to start with something that we can actually verify, that Jesus was quoting scripture. Jesus was shouting out the opening lines of Psalm 22, a a prayer that eventually in the text describes a body that suffers in a way that would actually suggest crucifixion. It's easy to see why Jesus would choose that as his final prayer before dying. And this psalm, while, while speaking of fear and suffering of an individual, most likely King David, is a very personal lament that then becomes the prayer of the community of Israel. It's all of Israel's prayer, a people who had drifted away from the intentions and purposes of God. They had followed kings who had led them into chaos and corruption. They had chosen international competition and embraced a culture of idolatry and then suffered the consequences of their corporate unfaithfulness. Well, Many still feared that the God they continued to worship had somehow forsaken them. And with his last breath, Jesus fully identified with all of God's people. He cried out the lament that was Israel's lament. In his aloneness, in the apparent silence of God, Jesus met death at the hands of the ones he was sent to redeem. And in doing so, he embraced their self-inflicted forsakenness into himself. And that forsakenness accompanied him into death. He took it to the grave. You know, it appears that even though Jesus was not given words to speak to his accusers, in his last moments, as he predicted, the Spirit of God gave him language that would capture Israel's plight and set the stage for a redemption they had never imagined. God was silent in one setting, but very vocal in another. You know, we we Christians believe that Jesus was more than just a good man, that, that he was more than a wise prophet who happened to have been martyred by his own people, We believe in something called the incarnation, that in Jesus, the fullness of God was real and alive, that Jesus is indeed the creative, redeeming word of God made flesh come to live among us. And so we are able to see that in Jesus, 
God is always present. That in Jesus, God is never absent. But there are times when God is silent. You know, I've sometimes had the occasion to counsel with people who have suffered deep loss, death of a loved one, the loss of resources and homes, a, a devastating medical diagnosis, all, all kinds of things. And it's not uncommon for them to assume God's absence in their suffering. And I understand that. In suffering, people often feel very much alone. But God's silence doesn't necessarily equate to God's absence. I recently read an article about how prayer for healing is often practiced in many African-American churches. The author said that, that prayer for healing happens quite frequently. And, and when a person recovers, understandably, there's great joy in the congregation. But when healing is not apparent, when the sick person who has been prayed for does not recover, the people still trust that Jesus, the one who knows our suffering, has come alongside the suffering one to bring love and care. These, these very traditional congregations speak of Jesus as a doctor who has never lost a patient. He makes house calls and treats patients with compassion. You know, it would be good if we didn't think that we follow Jesus everywhere except into the places of loss and suffering. Very often, those are the silent places. Just over the last few weeks, we've heard of plenty of suffering across our whole country and certainly here in California. And there are going to be people struggling to understand where God is in these tragedies. Where, where did God go and let all this stuff happen? Some will say, as people often do, well, there's a reason for everything. And of course they're right. There's a reason for everything that happens in the world. Cause and effect is not difficult to determine. Fires start because of down power lines, lightning, playing with matches, planes crash because of mechanical failures. There are plenty of reasons for why things happen in the world. But I don't think that's necessarily what people mean when they say that. I think what they're actually talking about is purpose. They want to know what purpose God had in mind, what greater plan he was working on when he allowed or even inflicted the pain and suffering that too often characterizes life on planet Earth. You know, it's interesting to see God that way, the God who comes to us in Jesus as Emmanuel. God is with us. In Jesus, we encounter God who is above and beyond us, and yet at the same time very intimately connected with us. And this God is indeed purposeful and certainly brings redemption and healing in and after tragedies. But to say that God has a kind of toolbox full of pain and suffering that he employs in order to solve other greater problems may be to say too much about God. Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His anguished cry is not only the lament of Israel, it's the lament of the world. It's the lament of our world. But we who follow Jesus, 
are called to demonstrate what it looks like to move from hopelessness to hope. We come alongside those who suffer and we look for God's presence, even waiting until the Holy Spirit grants us the words to say. In 2005, some friends and I traveled to Louisiana just days after Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf, uh, Gulf Coast. And uh, one day, a, a friend and I were helping a young man clear out all the destroyed furnishings from his sister's home in a, in a ravaged neighborhood just outside of New Orleans. I, I've never in my life seen such devastation. And uh, this poor guy, this exhausted young man, had lost his own home. Uh, he was in the construction trades. He had a business and a building and vehicles. At that moment, he said, it's all under eight feet of water right now. He lost everything. Uh, even the clothes on his back were borrowed. His wife and children were safe. They'd gone to Houston, I think. We took a break from our labors, and uh, he told us that he and his wife had recently been talking about God. Uh, they'd even talked about possibly going to church, if you can imagine such a thing. But they hadn't done anything about it. They hadn't taken any steps to move beyond that conversation. And in reference to the loss that, he'd suffer, that he suffered, he said, well, I guess God finally got my attention. Well, my friend and I kind of looked at each other, and, and, and we used the opportunity to talk to him, to help him see God not as the great inflictor who sent hurricanes to people who procrastinated about going to church, but rather as the one who knew his suffering, who had even sent us to come alongside him to help. And we prayed with him and returned to our work. You know, as, as we process the horrific stories of, of national and international tragedies, and even as we deal with our own particular stories of pain and loss. We look to Jesus to remember that we are not alone. We are not forsaken. In and through Jesus, God is with us by his spirit. And in his odd, unexplainable way, God continues to call us to come alongside those who suffer, bearing witness to God's presence, even in the times when God seems to be silent. You know, as I said earlier, Psalm 22 opens up with words of forsakenness, but it doesn't end there. As the psalm moves toward closing, we hear this prayer. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. May it be so for us. Amen.